If you have your Bibles or your uh, whatever you're reading your Bibles on, um, we're going to be working from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I will encourage those of you who are um, uh, investing time in the prayer covenant, if you started on, the, um, uh, on that first Sunday of Lent, that means you're about halfway, okay? So you're, uh, it depends if you miss a couple days in there, but you're right around 20 days. Um, so be encouraged. And this is a, a really powerful way to bless the church, to bless each other, um, and to personally be blessed um, as we travel together uh, through this Lenten season and as we travel together out of COVID-19 and, and uh, transitioning, uh, hopefully, back to a more normal uh, gatherings and, and times together. But that transition itself may be somewhat difficult. As we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, um, just a, a little bit of the background. Paul is speaking in the context of those who appear to be teaching that it's necessary for the Corinthians to follow certain aspects of the Old Testament law in order to gain full acceptance with God. So in this context, uh, the, the Apostle Paul's combating a false teaching that uh, by showing some of the ways in this passage that the new covenant surpasses that of the old covenant. That is, when I talk about the old covenant, I'm talking about the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. And this was a very difficult issue in the New Testament period. You know, what, what, what still is required from the old um, covenant, especially for the Jewish people who had turned to Christ? Um, this was a very challenging and, and complicated question, actually. So um, there are these teachers in, in Corinth that are, um, it sounds like they're um, saying that it, you still need to follow many of the ceremonial uh, rituals of the old covenant, and this is creating confusion. This morning, um, as we come to this, this text, the main point is this, is that the new covenant is glorious. The new covenant arrangement that God has with his people is a glorious arrangement. And it's cause for God's people to be thankful, to rejoice, and to walk in a manner worthy. Okay, so, and, and so a, a large part of this is, is just, my goal is for you to start to wrap your minds around. So this is about understanding. This is about um, uh, wrapping your minds around just the nature and the glory of the new covenant. With that in mind, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Beginning in verse 10. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Open our minds, Lord, to the teaching of the Spirit and enable us to embrace it in singleness of heart, that all the steps of our life, day by day, may be ordered by you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So this is part two, and and so um, Paul begins this discussion back in actually verse six, um, and so we're kind of breaking into this uh, this discussion that Paul is having concerning the new covenant, and he's already explained how the new covenant is glorious because in it God has granted life, in it God has um, uh, granted the righteousness we need to stand before a perfectly holy God, and that that justifying righteousness is made available to us through Jesus. This is a righteousness that is not earned by us, but credited to us by God in spite of our wrongdoings. Paul goes on to describe several more ways in which the new covenant is glorious and superior to the old covenant. In verses 10 and 11, Paul tells us, that whereas the old covenant was temporary, the new covenant is permanent. Okay, so he's continuing on, and, 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 and as he works on the, uh, both on the side of the old covenant, he's contrasting its provisional nature with that of uh, the new covenant. In verse 10, Paul describes the old covenant as coming, uh, uh, that the old covenant has come to have no glory because of the establishment of the new. Uh, the old has no glory relative to the new covenant because of the many ways in which the new covenant has surpassed it. Paul um, almost assumes, really, that the old covenant was and has been brought to an end. So look at verse 11 here. Uh, in verse 11, he writes, For if what was being brought to an end came with glory. That is, he's referring here to the old covenant. Much more will what is permanent have glory. So he, he's arguing from a, kind of a, a lesser circumstance. If, if something that was temporary had glory as manifested, you know, he's using, um, he's referring back here to this episode where Moses comes down off of Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. And when he comes down, his face is literally radiating. It's shining with light. It's shining with the, this kind of holy radiance of God. And he's able to speak to the Israelites um, just briefly before they are pleading with him to cover his face because they find it deeply troubling. And, and perhaps, you know, the, this was just after they had the, the whole golden calf episode. Um, so for them, it, this light might have been, you know, they just felt it uh, reaching into their souls with, with this kind of uh, uh, perhaps some condemnation uh, as they compared their own hearts to the holy radiance of uh, flowing from the face of Moses. And if the old covenant nevertheless had this glory and it was temporary, how much more, you know, this is Paul's argument, how much more glory 
should that which will not be replaced, it will not be supplanted before the coming of Christ by another um, uh, uh, covenant. And so this teaches us two things. Number one, it teaches us, Paul is saying something about the old covenant. He is saying that the old covenant, uh, in fact, has it has been fulfilled. Jesus said, I came not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So think of the old covenant, something like a mortgage you know, uh, agreement. You, you purchase a home, um, you go to the bank, uh, you, they agreed um, to loan you the money to buy the house on the terms that you pay a certain amount every month for you know, 15 to 30 years. And after the terms of that mortgage are um, uh, fulfilled, well, the mortgage goes away. Okay, the, the, it's, it wasn't abolished. The mortgage was a good thing, but it, it, it has been fulfilled. The terms are uh, no longer uh, in force. And in a sense, that's the way um, Paul is looking at the Old Covenant, is when Christ came, the terms, the things that the Old Covenant was pointing to were in fact fulfilled um, through the coming of the Deliverer, of the Redeemer, Jesus and um, for this reason, then, the ceremonies and the rituals and, and, and these elements of the law are, are, you know, they've been done away with. As we look at, okay, so then that raises a question for us. So how, does, how do we look at the Old Covenant? And generally, um, teachers divide the Old Covenant into kind of three parts. They look at it in terms of its moral law, that is the law that just flows right out of God's moral nature, that, that, uh, that part of God's um, character that is unchanging. The moral aspect of the law continues. So we're still not permitted to kill. <laughs> we're not permitted to lie. We're not permitted to commit adultery and these sorts of things. But the parts that had to do with the civil use, the government, you know, uh, the way they might conduct holy war, for instance, these, these things are gone, along with all the ceremonial pieces that have to do with the, the uh, difference between clean and unclean, the dietary restrictions, the sacrifices, the temple, all of this has been done away with. It has all been fulfilled in Christ. And so Paul compares this then to the new covenant. And he says the new covenant is a message. It's, a, uh, it's an arrangement that will be in force until Christ returns. And, and, and this sometimes, I think, creates some confusion between how do we look at modern-day Israel? And one of the things we have to say is, if what Paul is saying is correct, there are not two ways of salvation. There's not a, a, you know, a path of salvation for Jewish people and another path of salvation for Christians. Um, no, there is only one pathway to the Lord. Jesus says to his Jewish disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus says. There's no under, other name under heaven by which we may be saved than that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so um, what we need to understand from what Paul is saying is there is only one way. And even as um, Romans describes this kind of massive return of, of Jewish uh, people um, prior, at some future point, um, however that looks, that massive return, however we understand that passage, 
it won't be through some other mechanism. There's not a secondary plan. It will be through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Part of the glory of the new covenant is that it's uh, permanent. It will not be surpassed. One commentator writes, the gospel message of salvation by grace through faith and God's final word to man, to his completed work, nothing may be added. Any attempt to return to the external ritual and ceremony of the old covenant brings not blessing, but a curse. Not only is the new covenant not like the old in its permanence, the new covenant is glorious because it provides a sure and certain hope. He says it just very briefly um, uh, in verse 12. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Paul's referring back to what he's declared about the new covenant. He's telling us another way of appreciating the glory of the new covenant is to appreciate how there is a glorious hope at the center of it. You know, it's, it's true, um, as uh, many have observed, that if a person has a sense of hope in their life, if, if, if they can see that there's, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, they can endure almost anything. They can endure almost any adversity when they see that there's nevertheless um, uh, an end uh, to it. The gospel, at the center of the gospel, is the hope of life. It's the hope of freedom from condemnation. It's the hope of forgiveness and eternal life. And that eternal life begins now. It's characterized by Paul as righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans fourteen seventeen. Paul loves to discuss this, this idea, this concept of hope in his letters. He writes in Romans 15, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. He prays for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1.18, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And because he was driven by this sure and certain hope, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. This means that if you're a member of the new covenant, that is, if you are in Christ, whatever is comes, whatever comes your way, whatever disappointment, whatever adversity, uh, whatever um, uh, suffering, God says to you in the end, it's going to be okay. If you're in Christ, it is going to be okay. Beginning with the gift of his promises, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of many spiritual blessings, especially the gift of of Christ, what he has already accomplished for us, and the hope of this future inheritance in the future kingdom of God and a new heavens and a new earth. We have a future inheritance that is secure. It cannot be stolen from us. 
Satan can't take it away. Um, the world cannot take it away. It is set aside for God's people. It is a hope um, that is uh, it's secure for us in the heavenly places. If we get through, um, if we understand this, and it's not that we're naive about the realities of life. Indeed, there's suffering in the world. It's characterized um, as long as we live in a fallen world. It will be characterized by sin and death. And nevertheless, we have this amazing hope of a future um, that is secure. And it means at bottom that Christians should not be pessimists, okay? Again, there are seasons where we weep. There are seasons of grief and sorrow and loss. But, but in the end, there is also the sense that Christ has overcome and that one day we will fully overcome. Victory is in one sense already ours. There's this kind of already and not yet idea of the kingdom. Already we share in, in the spiritual blessings of Christ. But one day when Jesus returns, if the world will be made new. Sin will be done away with. Death will be, uh, will be completely destroyed. And indeed, even as we grieve, Paul reminds us in Thessalonians, we do not grieve as others who have no hope. And this means that Paul, uh, there, there's no shielding, there's no veiling the message of the gospel, the good news of Christ's death and resurrection. The gospel message is at its core a message of good news. It is a message of hope. And the result of this, one result that Paul says is that he has this hope that results in his boldness. You know, and again, he's, he's making this comparison with Moses veiling his face. He's saying, unlike Moses, we are bold. We can be fearless. We can be confident in proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ, the hope that we have in him. And then this leads to a question that Paul seems to anticipate If the new covenant is so filled with glory, why have the Jewish people not believed? In verses 14 through 16, Paul shifts from speaking about the veil that covered Moses' face to shield the people from the glory of God. And he uses, now and now he's going to use this language metaphorically. He's going to use the language of the veil to speak of this kind of spiritual hardening um, that has taken place within the Jewish people that spiritually is work in their hearts and minds. In verses 14 through 16, um, Paul just uh, writes this. He says, but their minds, and now he's speaking of, of the, uh, the Jewish people, their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains uh, unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So it's interesting how Paul just shifts his metaphors here. <laughs> you know, now it's, you know, the literal idea of the veil on Moses' face. Now he's turning this into a metaphor for why is it that if the new covenant is so glorious, if Christ is so glorious, why is it that so many of the Jewish people of his day um, did not receive and accept the message? And what he's saying is... Um, it's ultimately not an intellectual problem. It, 
it, it wasn't a problem that they could not understand um, uh, or, you know, they, they had trouble just um, uh, understanding the old covenant that they read. The, the ultimate problem here is it's a moral problem. It's the problem of sin. It's, it's a spiritual problem. The hardness of their hearts is, is the way that Moses, I mean, the way Paul describes the situation so that when they humble themselves, when they repent of their sins, when they turn to the Lord, the Spirit then is at work within them. And in a sense, the Spirit removes this hardness of heart. He removes the veil from their, their hearts, from their minds, so that then as they read the Old Covenant, they'll be able to see things they could not see, spiritually speaking, before. Jesus refers to this in John 5.39 when he's, he's having this discussion with religious leaders. And to the religious leaders, um, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, and similar to what Paul's saying here, that if they, had, if they were reading with their eyes spiritually wide open, they would see how the Old Covenant, how Moses and the prophets were already writing in terms of the promises and the types and the prophecies were already pointing to the coming of a Messiah, of a, a Redeemer. So the problem's not intellectual, it's moral. And just as uh, maybe a, a little bit of an aside, it's also just worth pointing out um, here where Paul says, um, he says in verse 14, to this day when they read the old covenant, I just want to highlight, this is where our language of Old Testament, New Testament comes from. It comes from what Paul says here as he refers to um, the Old Testament as the Old Covenant writings. In Latin, covenant is testament. And so that's just where that terminology comes from. Um, and and uh, although, you know, you'll, you'll hear today more commonly or more often the term Hebrew Bible or Hebrew Scriptures, um, and that's perfectly reasonable. Just It's recognizing um, uh, the Old Testament written in Hebrew, the New Testament written in Greek, um, and, and when we refer to it as the Old Testament, obviously we're making a Christian statement <laughs> concerning the Old Testament that would not be accepted by um, uh, Jewish people. So in these interfaith settings and academic set- settings, it's, it's appropriate um, uh, to refer to the Old Testament as Hebrew Scriptures. Within the church, it's still, um, I, I think, uh, common and, and um, uh, appropriate to refer to it as Paul does. Uh, the Old Testament. Now, as we read the Old Testament scriptures, we are able to see almost all over the place how it is preparing and pointing the way to the coming of Jesus. And so if we were to state this point in reverse, another aspect of the glory of the covenant, of the new covenant, is that the Spirit opens our eyes up so that now when we do read the Old Testament um, and we're reading it through the, through the lenses of the new, the New Testament, we're able to see how in many places it is preparing, it's preparing the way for the coming of Christ. It's preparing the way for the coming of Jesus. 
And, and, and then there are places in the New Testament which make this uh, very explicit, um, many places in the Gospel of John. But the entire letter to the Hebrews is highlighting how the Old, the, the Old Testament is preparing and pointing the way for the coming of Christ. And so um, uh, this is one of the gifts of the New Covenant, of the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Paul keeps building on his subject um, as he talks about the glory of the new covenant. He says, not only is it marked by permanence, hope, and, and you know, talking about the illumination of the scriptures, but the new covenant offers freedom. Verse 17, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The first thing to note is that in an age where the role and the work of the Holy Spirit is central, to our ongoing experience. It's important for Paul to clarify that the Spirit is God. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. In the context, this Lord is probably not a reference to God the Son, but to God the Father, to Yahweh. Um, uh, just kind of, he's, he's continuing his allusion from the Old Testament. So the Lord, Yahweh, is the Spirit. The Spirit is fully divine. The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, Paul can say there is freedom. He's not talking, you know, this isn't about political freedom. This isn't about, oh, that means I can do whatever I want to do. That's not what he's referring to here. The freedom he's referring to is the freedom from the condemnation of the law. He's talking about the freedom of life, the freedom of forgiveness in Christ, the freedom where um, in the new covenant, because Christ has fulfilled all the um, obligations and the terms, if we are in Christ, the burden of keeping the covenant has been taken away. For us, the covenant keeping is not a conditional uh, work. We're not trying to, to maintain God's favor. We do so because it's who we are. We do so because it pleases God to follow his will, to um, follow his commandments. And so there's freedom that Paul um, describes here. And the word here, um, uh, and this is a freedom to pursue a course of life that pleases God. Biblical freedom, then, is it's not a license to do whatever we want to do, but it is the ability to faithfully follow Christ, and to live in a manner worthy of him. And and this freedom of the Spirit leads to the next aspect. And this is this the idea that the new covenant produces over time a transformed life. And this is really a really amazing statement. And it's a statement that Paul is going to unpack. He's going to unpack it in the next six verses of um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But in verse 18, the apostle kind of winds this section up with these words. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. First of all, Paul is referring back to the experience of Moses. Moses came, his face was radiating the glory of God, he had to put a veil on it. But 
when Moses appeared in the presence of God, when he would um, appear at the, sanct- at the tabernacle and, and he would be able to enter into the Holy of Holies, his face, it, um, the, the Bible tells us that, that he would remove the veil from his face and he would be able to see and look into the glory of God directly. And Paul is using that illusion to say, in the new covenant, that's what all of us have the privilege of doing. All of us have the privilege of being able to behold the glory of God, especially in the face and in the person of Jesus directly. And the word he uses here, transformed. So when we do this, he says, you're being transformed, you're being changed. That word transformed is that word, you know, it's a verb in Greek, uh, metamorpho, um, and it's the word we get metamorphosis, um, uh, uh, this kind of uh, very uh, dramatic change, this transformation. The Bible, the New Testament does not use that verb very often. It only uses it to describe the transfiguration of Jesus when he's on the mountain with his disciples, and it uses it again in Romans 12, verse 2. When Paul writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He describes this transformation as taking place as the Spirit reveals more and more to us. So this is a kind of a a spiritual beholding. It's It's a beholding of the heart and the mind. It's being able to see the glory of Christ as he's revealed to us in the scriptures, as he's illuminated um, in us by the Holy Spirit. And as we see the love of God, as we see the grace of God, as we see his willingness to sacrifice, as we see the glory of God, as it, as it you know, it's, it's kind of revealed, the curtains um, pulled back every now and then in the ministry of Jesus. As we see these things, what Paul says is it has a transformative effect upon us. Now, he describes it as being changed from glory by degree, from glory to glory. And this means that this is not an overnight change. This is not, you know, you go into your cocoon as a a caterpillar and you come out as a butterfly. That's not exactly what he's describing here. What he's describing here is once we've been made a new creation in Christ, that there is this very slow, usually slow, progressive work that the Lord is doing in us and through us. And, he, and, and what Paul is saying, but it's a real work. It's a real change that is taking place in the way we think, the way we behave, the way we learn to love and not just be you know, focused on ourselves, on our own needs that we're able to get outside of ourselves and really consider the needs of others as more important than our own. He says, slowly, this is happening. And and it may be so slow in some cases that you think, oh, I don't don't feel like I'm any different than when I first became a Christian, you know, years and years ago. Um, Sometimes it's like the frog in the kettle. It's just slow. And sometimes it's, you know, three steps forward, two steps back. And so it's kind of, it's not a straight line. It's, it's more like a roller coaster ride. But what Paul is saying is the more you see Christ, the more you are being changed. And so this is our encouragement then to be in the word, to be under the preaching of the word, to, to engage with the Lord in prayer, to engage in fellowship where the Lord is at work 
in one another. And as we see Christ in each other, this has, um, it's, it does its work within us. Well, let me just uh, summarize it this way. The new covenant is glorious. And it's glorious because it grants life and perfect righteousness. It's glorious because it is permanent. It means there's always hope. It means freedom. And it means we are, in fact, being changed from one degree of glory to another. If you are in Christ, you know what Paul's saying is, rejoice, be thankful, and walk in a manner worthy. Well, let's pray. Spirit of the living God, let us not hear your word in vain. Convince us of its truth. Cause us to feel its power. And bind us to yourself with the bonds of faith and hope and love which never pass away. As we prepare to go forth, guide us by your hand. Keep us by your power. And hear us when we come to you in prayer for the sake of Jesus who redeemed us at the cost of his shed blood. Amen.